0: Welcome everyone. I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana, and we're here today for shreveport Bozier, my city, my community, my home. My guest today is Candace Higginbotham. So Candace, thanks so much for being with us. Sure, thanks for asking. Absolutely. All right, Candace, well, correct me if I'm mistaken. uh, I believe you worked For many years, for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, as many people know it,
1: I I worked for as as a federal employee for 15 years for HUD in the local field office. I worked for 20 years with the Department of Community Development, which included um, HUD as well as Department of Labor, Brownfields, Economic Redevelopment, Small Business Development, other funding.
0: And, and, and talk to me about, you know, some of the roles and responsibilities of, of, of HUD and, and, um, and the department's connection and importance to this community, like why, why we should care and what we should know about what HUD has done in, inside of this community. HUD is,
1: of course, the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And it grew out of some uh, just some discretionary grants that uh, we're trying to help communities deal with among other things uh, disasters um, uh, as well as of course housing shortages uh, poverty Um, the of course the the market uh, the free market um, is Composed of, of folks who do, uh, you know, great work in developing houses, housing and uh, apartments, etc., cetera, multifamily uh, developments. But it is, as, as is, you know, normal uh, profit-driven. And there's a much higher profit margin in the upper end of the housing market. And you can build... Um, a house that would cost two hundred and fifty thousand dollars could be in, uh, improved to be a house that was five hundred thousand dollars without without that much additional investment because the infrastructure is part of the, you know basic cost but of course people are going to do what is healthiest for their business and their employees and their stockholders so traditionally there has been very little development of Uh, housing for middle-income and low-income households. Um, Back in the Reagan administration he came up with uh, what is called a low-income housing tax credit to encourage developers to do um, housing for low and middle-income people and that's that's still in existence Uh, but it's also a matter of trying to Ensure that people have options to live in safe, decent, and affordable housing. Uh, in many communities, including ours, there is a significant level of poverty due to a lot of different socioeconomic factors um, and historic factors. Uh, and we have neighborhoods where the housing stock has greatly declined, it's been bought and used for rental housing and perhaps not, in many instances, not maintained the way it should be. So people have very limited um, options. And it's not, even then, it's not inexpensive. So um, for years, HUD built housing for low-income people and they were all put in one place. And about 20 years ago, a little more than that, they realized All we're doing is concentrating poverty and everybody in the same place in corners that of the cities that nobody wants to live in and so they began doing mixed income sliding scale developments um, with an emphasis on access to grocery stores pharmacies um, transportation etc and that has made a significant improvement in housing availability but we're still very very short on Housing for the average middle class family, working class families, um, as well as low income. And I, I think, you know, it's a condition that is global. You know, it's, um, it's just the nature of the market. Um, but there are efforts to, to try to improve that. Um, I worked for HUD for 15 years. I did work with the Department of Community Development for the city with grant writing and grants management for everything from um, as as well as HUD funds but also um, Department of Labor funding uh, for uh, job training for people who had been laid off for example the dislocated workers from the manufacturing that we had that we lost thirty percent of in three years uh, or it was actually more than that, um, but that was, you know, when everybody was moving to South America or China for, low well, labor costs and higher profit margins, um, but I also worked with funds that were um, foundation. We started the first Brownfields program in Shreveport.
0: And, and, and talk to me for people, I, I know what that term means, but for people that don't know what brownfields are, would you mind sure. clarifying that?
1: When EPA was running the Superfund program, which was all of these places that had been abandoned and had multiple uh, um, contamination issues from industrial use typically, so nobody wants to touch them because once you buy it, that problem is yours you may not even have known it was there but it's yours uh, so they began to try to come up with um, alternatives for use of brownfields, fields depending on the proposed use and they called them brownfields fields because they stayed brown. you know they, they stayed undeveloped, unredeveloped, even though they already had infrastructure you know, utilities, access uh, etc but um,
0: in my understanding is in, in kind of the opposite is a greenfield usually people will call a new development something exactly that
1: it's, it's easy to cut down trees and put in a new development somewhere uh, but of course it may not be the most efficient way to keep uh, employment and to save your core cities um, so at any rate Brown what Browns fields, programs did was to give opportunities for people to apply for assistance. First you did a, um, a catalog of all the, quote, Granville properties in your community, and the city's first grant for that, um, uh, Dr. Gary Joyner, history professor at LSU Shreveport, did much of the work in getting historical background. Anytime you do any kind of development on-site, um, with federal funds, you have to have what's called a shipo, and that's historic, you know, preservation, which include analysis, which also includes the the former use and whether or not. Obviously, you don't want There's sites you don't want to build housing on, but you can do something commercial. What McDonald's ended up doing, for example, is going into inner cities and developing uh, McDonald's restaurants by putting down a concrete slab over everything, and then it's fine. You know, then you don't have to worry about it. You don't plant. If you do a plant, you do a planter on top of it with the soil that you bring in yourself, but there's no danger of contamination to the community. Similarly with, um, for example, lead-based paint, a lot of beautiful older houses were, were torn down or, or were not maintained because of the issues of, of lead-based paint the dust can be tremendously detrimental especially to children below the age of six so what we're calling developmental delays uh, and cognitive uh, issues so if you if you sand it and repaint it you've got to make sure that you've contained all those dust particles and that the people who are i mean they come home with them on their clothes right the people who do that work uh, and it's, and it's uh, disposed of as toxic waste, but if, if you, uh, you sheetrock over that wall, it's encapsulated and it's not a problem. They began looking at ways of make, ensuring that these inner city sites could be used again without having to spend millions on um, removing all of the contaminants contain them then they you know there's lots of, when there's some industrial sites in Treeport that have been redeveloped basically because of the Brownfields uh, program.
0: Um, is that still in effect the Brownfields program locally? It,
1: yes yes it is I mean it's it's a it's a factor this the funding is not as significant as it used to be it was never enormous but uh, and it was There was a HUD, Brownfield's Economic Redevelopment Program, that it was, uh, you know, competitive grant funding, not formula, and it's not something that a city gets every year that it it competes for. Um, And when I was, when I was with the HUD field office, I was like a HUD partner in the EPA's Brownfield program in, in rating proposals from another region, not from any proposals in our region. And some of them would just make your heart breeding them, you know, for example, uh, well places like Michigan and the water situation in um in Flint or in West Virginia where all of this cold silt and dust has been dumped in mountain streams and contaminated the water and the water's like red and they need, you know, help cleaning that up. Um, but um it's not, again, it's not a formula grant. It's not something that, that comes around every year for cities that needed it. There's way too much need, you know, to be able to fund that. But, um, and it's not funded for competitively as, with as much money as it, as it was at one point. But um, it's still a viable program, and it's very, very helpful in communities in both attack, attracting redevelopment within the city core and also
0: developing um, housing for middle- and low-income families. Great. All right, well, I'll move into something um, that's uh, fairly specific. I I believe you were deeply involved, if I'm not mistaken, in the Choice Neighborhoods project. Yes. Um, Can you talk some about the process of securing the monies for the project, uh, where Choice Neighborhoods is located, and why... It's an important development for our community. Okay,
1: um, I had they they closed field offices all over the country, mostly to where there was on Hunt uh, did budget cuts uh, to where there was only one state. So of course that it was us in New Orleans, and we had like the northern fifty something parishes, uh, and they had basically Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and uh, the toe of the boot, but. Um, at any rate I did not want to move to Fort Worth to the regional office um, and I decided to retire instead and a couple of months after that uh, the city had put out a request for proposal for people to apply to be the choice neighborhoods coordinator and they were in the pro; they had a planning grant and they had uh, completed the planning grant and wanted to apply for uh, an implementation grant, and so I went through that um, bidding process. Not really bidding; it's it was uh, uh, competitive process, and was chosen. I had been the um, uh, coordinator for my field office for those types of, um, but I was in field policy management, not in the grant side. But at any rate. So, I had, I had, you know, a specific background that, that made me suitable for it. And I did that for um, seven years. Um, Choice Neighborhoods was an, is an approach that moves away from, for example, after Katrina, um, the housing development um, that was destroyed Um It was proposed that it not be replaced there in the Ninth Ward. There's flooding issues, all the reasons why it would not be sustainable. Uh, And, um, but there was a lot of community support and political support for doing that. So that's what they ended up doing. Uh, And of course it, it, it got destroyed too. (laughs) Not as badly as Katrina, but nevertheless, It doesn't make sense to build um, housing for people in areas where they don't have good transportation, they don't have good schools, they don't have access to health care, they don't have grocery stores, the little mom and pop places. You know, they're, they're convenient and God bless them, they're small businesses in a neighborhood which are very important. But the other thing is they have to charge more because their profit margin is you know, so minimal. Grocery stores, we did a, 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 a study with um, an entity, Brown uh, Supermarkets in, on the East Coast, who had they'd been asked to go in and do build uh, supermarkets in uh, food deserts, you know, places where there were no grocery stores. And most big chains have. Uh, and they had done it successfully tried several times. And so they decided to create, they said, look, we don't need to be the only people doing this. So they created a nonprofit that would go in and do an, a market analysis, visit the main grocery stores in the area. Um, and of course, from the standpoint of a, of a man who um, runs a, a large chain of grocery stores successfully, uh, the management and technical expertise, market expertise. Um, so they did that here. And um, I had not realized until uh, we had this consultant come in that the margin for a grocery store, the profit margin, is only about 3%, which is why they all want to sell alcohol. (laughs) Well, in, um, in, for example, Allendale and Ledbetter, You can't go three blocks without bumping into a church, you know. And there's the the state of Louisiana provision that you can't have, sell alcohol within 300 feet of a church or school. There was lots of land, but land that was level enough, you know, not hilly, level enough and had the access to enough land to have a back, you know the deck where shipping comes and goes uh, that sort of thing uh, was was just almost impossible to find nevertheless um, there was a lot of good things about getting that information um, we still don't have a, a grocery store there uh, but that doesn't mean that we're not trying and there's been of course a good deal of uh, additional developments such as uh, the MS kick development that's run by Southern University it's a small business development we had all, when we did the uh, focus groups the meetings with residents and other interested parties stakeholders we realized there were a lot of people who were catering out of their homes on a small level to make a living and, and doing some good work but they could not afford to do a commercial kitchen so um, the kitchen incubator was one of the projects that grew out of that planning process and that had tremendous support both from residents and from business people who participated in the exercise um, and is you know now up and running and uh, helping grow small businesses. They won't be there forever it's, it's, it's kind of like cohab it's like to get started and, and get the business uh, management training that you need uh, as well as uh, learning the industry standards and what's required to run a commercial kitchen and and that sort of thing. So that was that was one of the projects. Um, All of them came through um, a community vetting process um, and there were boards of local residents and business people who reviewed um, the information that came in from all those public hearings. Choice Neighborhoods is targeted towards neighborhoods that have had uh, public housing developments and with the emphasis on, and of course it's very very competitive. We were the first mid-sized city to get one. Um, But it is to look at not just the site where the housing funds are going to be used, but for the community and to promote educational opportunities, good schools, transportation, uh, health care, access to healthy foods. Um, And there are lots of partnerships in that um, um, grant program that include elements of all of that. Of course, we were competitive in part, I think, because of... um, um, public transportation improvements um, that changed many buses that went through neighborhoods so that automatically improved it. For developments of uh, grocery stores for example you know 6, 000, what they call 6,000 rooftops uh, is enough to be competitive. If you have a location, we had learned that Most of the people in Allendale were shopping either at Brookshire's on North Market or at Brookshire's on Kings Highway. And with a large population of elderly, they were taking the bus. Um, And that's still um, a challenge, but um, it's one that the more redevelopment that we are able to do, the more likelihood that we will be able to meet that challenge as well and of course there are other elements looking for uh, the development of a grocery store downtown and you have wonderful things like cotton farms and Shreveport Common that are creating opportunities uh, for, for multiple uh, artistic and uh, community-oriented activities uh, as well as you know family entertainment um, I'll make sure I answered you did your no, that was great
0: that was great um all right, my next question is you spent a you spent a career in public service for those listening to you who want to do more for the community and or who are considering pursuing a career in public service, what words of wisdom can you share with them?
1: There is tremendous need um, i I grew up with um in a family that my parents had been born uh, like at the end of the, the the Spanish flu, which of course wasn't Spanish, but um, and lived, you know, grew up during the Great Depression. Um, lived through World War II. My father tried to enlist, and they wouldn't let him because they, he was a railroad engineer, and they said, "We need you running trains." And he came home in tears, you know, because he couldn't sign up. But, um, at any rate. And a mother who um, was very, very active in the community um, and who did remarkable things and never really wanted the attention. You know, um, she was involved um, in better education for children. Um, she was involved in civil rights efforts. There were groups of both Democrats and Republicans who met trying to, you know, the turbulent uh, 60s, trying to um, develop ways that government could be more responsive to those who were marginalized or left out. Um, And there were a lot of remarkable women in that generation of which Sylvia Goodman is one that did extraordinary things. And when you think about the fact that it wasn't until, what, 1977 when, I mean, it had been, finally been retracted, but the, the the case where, I mean, women couldn't own property, they couldn't have bank accounts unless their husband signed on it, they couldn't have credit cards, and I think it was maybe 1972 before they rescinded that law. You know, it was kind of bizarre. I, you, you don't think of it that way, but, um, but they also did work on creating a response the homelessness that began to um, creep into our neighborhoods which were the result of, of a number of factors one of which was pretty much shutting down all the mental hospitals or most of them after some abuses were found and but it left all these folks just loose in the community and then of course we had We had young men and women coming back from Vietnam who had PTSD and other disorders related to their service. Um, I think even now about a quarter of the homeless are veterans. Um, but they began programs for that. Um, if we don't get out of our own neighborhoods, maybe we're not that aware of what the need is. But, but there are folks who did, and um, as, as one of my favorite professors would, would tell his class, his first class um, in college was, as you go through life, try to look at things from the balcony. And he would use a metaphor of kids going to a dance, and the ones who were close to the stage, it was hot, the band was loud, and there was a lot of people there, it was great people a little further back you know said yeah it was pretty well attended it was nice the band was it was it was good it was not quite loud enough and then there were people at the back who couldn't hear and it didn't look like there was hardly anybody there but if you went up to the balcony you could see the big picture and um, it was a metaphor that influenced me and has sustained me in many ways um, my whole life but what I saw growing up was what Um, what people could do in their own community just by volunteering just by participating in PTAs and um, uh, the Conference of Christians and Jews uh, uh, organizations that were community based organizations designed to meet a particular community need churches that worked together to address uh, problems in the community and hunger um, and homelessness Um, we have we still have a lot of heroes out there most of them nobody really knows that that's the case but but some very distinctive people that have dedicated their careers to whether they are um, uh, working people with small businesses or you know, employees of other businesses, or women staying home and, and raising children, or caring for elderly parents, um, there are volunteer opportunities for everyone. the
0: The Martin Luther King
1: Health Center, which Sister Margaret started in the Bottoms, for example, uh, was with, you know, a young resident that would come volunteer his time and see people in the uh, in the soup kitchen because and there were a lot of homeless there then on Sprague Street that loomed into, with support from multiple local churches, um, it was struggling to survive. And um, community leaders, and by that I, I mean people who have stepped up most of their lives, whether or not their names are common to the general public, there are a lot of these people in our community and it is something to be proud of and I think that a lot of people don't realize how much they give to the quality of life of the community. At um, any rate, um, I watched, I was the youngest child, my brother's 11 years older, he ended up being an Air Force Colonel in, in Vietnam and he was in the Pentagon on nine eleven. 11 as a matter of fact, but, um, but I watched my mother's activities, um, in education, in programs for the elderly, um, and with a network of people who were working, trying to make things better. Um, and I was really inspired by that. When I, when I got to college, of course, I was, I really loved doing community theater, and I, I'd major in theater, you know, and end up selling insurance like a lot of kids that did. (laughs) But at any rate, I I got down to Baton Rouge, and um, at that point in time, the theater department was very limited because they could not charge admission to their place. They could only operate on what the legislature budgeted for them, and um, so that they could only do things that were in the public domain they didn't have money for costumes, they didn't have money for scenery, you know, uh, and Shreveport was such a thriving uh, arts community with multiple community theaters and a symphony that frankly, when I got to Baton Rouge, was obviously much better than the Baton Rouge symphony. No no intent, I lived in Baton Rouge for ten years, I, <laughs> I don't want to diminish the value of that community, but um, in a ways it made me more appreciative of Shreveport and the cultural resources there that were and still are here Uh, and we can go on a long list of those but that would be another another conversation Uh, nevertheless I didn't know what I wanted to do I ended up in graduate school in political theory which really actually I learned a lot from Um, and I took uh, part-time jobs in uh, state government You know, I was in, I worked for Intergovernmental Relations, which was back when computers were just, uh, I'm aging myself, of course, but it's obvious, were, you know, just beginning to be utilized, and it was a very, very rudimentary system. A big computer and a computer science graduate student who was running it and doing, um, putting in keywords for people who were looking for funding for projects and trying to help them find federal resources to help address community needs. Uh, And then from there went to um, Louisiana Commission on Law Enforcement helping with working with uh, three three law students and me a political science graduate student working on the uh, omnibus crime control and Safe Streets Act funding that came to the state of Louisiana and how those funds were used doing um, public hearings in courts, police, corrections. Uh, It's been a while. There was one or two more. At any rate, um, in different areas of the state to get public input and feedback on what was happening and in the process of that I I worked with Elaine Hunt, who was director of the Department of Corrections at the time, and I was working on the. You had to write uh, um, a manual for each of those areas on the feedback you'd gotten from the community, and what the gaps were, and what the needs were, and that sort of thing. So, at any rate, uh, she ended up asking if I could be loaned to her because they were under the court order for um, for Angola, the conditions at Angola, and consent decree to help document that and that lady worked she was amazing I would I would come to the Department of Corrections office after I had my last class usually about three o'clock and we might leave at three o'clock in the morning she was an amazing woman and did remarkable things Um, and unfortunately died of pancreatic cancer (laughs) but she created the reception and diagnostic center that every every prisoner would go through to evaluate mental potential for violence aptitude uh, educational employment histories and determine okay what what is the best while we have this person what is the first of all what's the most secure place to put them so that we just don't throw everybody together Um, and secondly what can we do if it's no more than help them be literate uh, to improve their possibilities of not being uh, a repeat offender when they get out um, there were a lot of really um, great improvements made um, but then i um i was well not a bit in between I, went, I worked for the department planning and health, health planning and development when I was working on the certificate of need process, um, uh, where hospitals and nursing homes and healthcare facilities, rather than just, if they were receiving Medicaid funds or Medicare funds, um, that they weren't overbuilding, because if they're empty beds, it raises the cost for everybody, because you're paying for the cost of the infrastructure for those empty beds, um, and, um so they would have to apply for a certificate of need to do an expansion or a new facility or that sort of thing and that was eye-opening too um one of the things I learned uh, the influence that certain lobbies in the market were able to have over uh, uh, legislatures and you know it's it's no different than it is today where you have big corporations who are able to Support candidates that are uh, compatible with their, you know, be favorable to their interests. But um, so I kind of got a first eye view of a lot of different resources and and um, governmental uh, agencies and activities. And I, um, my parents, of course, wanted me to move back home. And they were getting older. I was the youngest, and. There were, they were doing some hiring uh, with the Bill Han administration and they had a, um, an advertisement for a planning unit manager to manage planning unit, meaning grants, in what was then a special programs office. They didn't know where to put them, put them so they, they put it under that umbrella and it became the Department of Community Development. So I came up for the interview thinking, you know. This is probably the best interview I've ever had for a job I don't particularly want. And then, of course, they offered me the job, and it was significantly more than I was making at my graduate student level, and I came, and um, I knew from the time I was fairly young that whatever I did, I wanted to have some kind of connection to public service because I, I witnessed what it can do, and I witnessed people difference Um, and it was the perfect place for me because I I had knowledge of uh, federal state and foundation resources that could I knew how to do needs assessments for communities I knew um, how to work collaboratively with people uh, to identify community needs and 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 grant writing Uh, so I did I I managed the planning unit there and then ended up becoming the assistant director and for a while the acting director Um, and then HUD offered me a fellowship to uh, be a a fellow for a a two-year period they they have not promoted people except from within in almost 20 years and they said we need people who have actually run programs you know and been in communities so they brought in um, what they call community builders program and to work in field policy management sections which is the management piece of field offices and to engage with communities Um, and so I did that and at the end of the two years they had um, put out vacancies that we could apply for, and I was one that was lucky enough to get one. So I ended up staying here 15 years. Um, It is some of the most frustrating work (laughs) because, you know, what you also see, unfortunately, is um, segments of the community working against each other because they're in competition rather than collaboration, but that's the human condition. I mean, that's just the way we are. That's one reason churches are so important in helping um, address community needs uh, that, you know, the market doesn't. But they can't do it by themselves. It takes some really strong nonprofits uh, who have capacity and, um, like everything else, somebody needs some serious management training or it ends up devolving into personalities um, and and being able to have them. A good organizational structure and a board that is active and not a rubber stamp but um, it, it was very fulfilling and it was very uh, helpful when I went to work for the city on a contract basis to do uh, to work with the Choice Neighborhoods Initiative and um, community meetings and writing grants to address the projects that the community process had identified to be a competitive application um, and that's you know that's still going on and there are lots of good things that a lot of people don't even you know probably not aware of that are still going to happen but it's also a piece of the redevelopment of downtown and um, job opportunities and again we're talking about mixed income housing not it's not a public housing development that's stuck in a corner and nobody wants to go in a neighborhood uh, and it meets um, standards for uh, being appropriate in the community uh, giving opportunities for uh, job opportunities for youth and extra educational opportunities So, it's a great network and collaborative effort that it took, you know, and Bonnie Moore, it would never have happened if Bonnie had not been in the place that she is in. Um, Was able, and she has tremendous respect both within the community and also nationally. It was one of the things that helped make us competitive. But also her her vision and her ability to do those things to bring community people together and um, address in a nonpartisan way um, community needs and letting people um, vocalize what they see as community needs. They used to say, you know, I'm from the government. I'm here here to help. Use the um, scariest words. I think Reagan said that. And there's been, um, you know, it's for decades now, disparagement of public employees and public servants. But let me tell you what, they're some, some, they're some of the finest people I've ever met. Um, and it's not, um, it's not by accident. They choose to, to do that even though they could make more in the private sector. And their integrity is important. And if there, you know, there's Hatch Act and all sorts of regulations on uh, not being nonpartisan uh, ethical standards um, that can get you fired. And people do get fired for it, and that's a good thing. But nevertheless. Um, it's it's been a journey and I'm proud to have been associated with you know many many of those people it's not that different I worked in little private sector jobs here and there Um, you have the same issues with personalities and egos and that any personnel manager has Um, you have people trying to exert special interest from the outside whether that be political or business and industry um, the bureaucracy is is, is is endemic to any large organization I also learned. I, I just assumed that this was only a governmental thing you know until you in the course of two months you're ordering a new uh, file cabinet, a uh, lateral file cabinet, for an employee whose file cabinet is, you know, falling apart, and the Xerox machines, of course, the copiers are done on a federal contract, you know, bid out, and um, the guy with the new copier shows up before the, they pick up the old one, even though it is Xerox. It's a different company that picks up the old ones, that brings in the new ones, and they don't talk to each other. You know, I mean, <laughs> and it's, you know, people that have tried to deal with returning something, yet you find it everywhere. It's just a matter of, if you're big enough, it's inevitable, unless you find better ways for communication. And, of course, I think we have them now, but they don't always... One, side, one piece of a company doesn't always... Uh, speak to the other, and that's true, you know, in government of, of entities that have, that have to collaborate or at least communicate, and some do it better than others. Um, and they may not know that somebody else is already doing this, you know. So again, it's, it's that balcony view that you have to, to try to keep in mind. Even when things don't seem to be right, you go, wait a minute, let me back up and look at this. And you listen to all the difference perspectives and it's wonderful when you can achieve consensus with community people that started out with opposing interests and, and come to a consensus um, based on listening to each other but we have to listen <laughs> great
0: you, you mentioned a little of this but my next question is can you talk about some of the people in the community who inspire you
1: I'm afraid I'd leave somebody out but I'll do it Um, there's so many there are just so many we could spend a couple hours and I'd still be talking Um, and many of them would never take credit for anything they fly below the radar they do what they do they're not interested in being in front of a camera they're not bragging on social media about what they do but from um poor sister Margaret was was one <laughs> also um the group of women who um and I'll be leaving somebody else out on that too Uh but who got together to, to develop an organization to serve the homeless. Um, um, Ruby Scroggins, Dr. Ruby Scroggins, who grew up in Allendale um, and had a very difficult childhood, ended up getting a PhD at Northeast and took J.S. Clark and turned it completely around. Um, Sister Sharon and the um, the school health clinics that she has shepherded and continued to shepherd uh, and work with us. Um, we can go back a lot further but um, Bonnie Moore who is soft-spoken has tremendous um, historical knowledge of federal resources available to communities, knows every regulation, um, won't cross the line, regardless of how many, you know, politicians tell her that those funds need to be used for something else. She's like, you know, it's like my first federal representative for Grant's administration with the city had an expression, and that was, "I'll do anything for you, but time." <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, it's public funds. You can't you can't treat them as though they are your personal businesses, or it, and it's not about you. You've got to look at the greater good and what the intent was. And the intent is legislation passed by Congress to meet a particular need, like the Dislocated Workers Program, when. Steel mills began laying people off, and manufacturing began fleeing to cheap markets to re- reduce labor costs. Um, gosh uh, it 's hard not to, to to list a gazillion. I think my mother was one, myrtle Pickering you who, who worked with um, who directed the Cattle Council on Aging and took it from a really small little agency to one with capacity and leadership that has followed um, in that same dedication. Ann Springer, Dr. Ann Springer, who was critical in getting uh, the CARA Center and Gingerbread House uh, in, developed in Shreveport. And we are—it it is one of those things that, it is so unfortunate that we need, and we are so lucky that we have it. And there's nothing like it in this region. Um, and of course, there there were several people associated with that too. Um, um, the the young pastors who are now, you know, some of them in their 90s that were the core of the civil rights movement in Shreveport and um, when the state um, banned membership in the NAACP they um, established a Southern Christian Leadership Conference Association with Dr. Martin Luther King, and he came. The recording of his speech at Galilee, I mean, it's called the speech at Galilee. You can listen to it online. In it are all the underpinnings of the I Have a Dream speech. Um, It was C.O. Simpkins, Dr. C.O. Simpkins, who brought him here. Uh, He made Reverend Harry Blake one of his first... Bill sergeants or riding right, right, right arms and of course Harry Blake almost lost his life just trying to hold a service for the children that were killed in the Birmingham church bomb um, I could list all those names but I'm sure I'd leave somebody out but if you've ever um, well you know of course the Edwards Jones uh, Dr. Jones uh, Pastor McLean, um, and again, I'm going to leave some out. Nevertheless, the, the Civil Rights Coalition that was formed over a decade ago with the core of those pastors, and then, of course, talking about Dr. Sarpy and Maxine Sarpy, and they, they treated um, Harry Blake on a couch in Little Union after he was almost beaten to death. Um, and if if you've if you never heard Maxine sit, speech, you've really missed something speech. Speak, you've really missed something. They were really bright. I mean they hosted the the national meeting of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Shreveport in what, 1962? With George Doritoys here. You know, I mean, you think about the courage of those vote. And all they were doing was trying to get, to be able to register to vote, to be able to um, be served at a counter, um, to make a decent living for themselves, and um, to have their children be able to go to good schools. One of the things my, my mother did with, um, she was, you know, of course, with the, teacher association for CATO but she was also like um, like the legislative uh, chair for the uh, state organization they proposed things like um, they passed laws that prohibited taking small children out of schools in South Louisiana to peel shrimp Um, child labor laws that type of thing but um, she and a number of other folks, like Aaron Silber, Charlton Lyons, um, um, oh gosh, the lady who who, who uh, ran for mayor ages ago, um, Virginia. Oh, I am certainly Virginia Sheedy. Yes, absolutely, and, and I should have mentioned her right off the bat too, uh, who just did things because they were the right thing to do, and they and they didn't think about how they might be perceived or how affect their social standing or um, took their ethics, whether it was, well, their Judeo-Christian ethics for the most part, I suppose, um, and worked together to try to make things better. Um, They really worked hard for education um, and managed to make some significant gains in their lifetime um, unfortunately you know we still got a ways to go you know um, nevertheless and I think a lot of it is I, I remember when I was about 12 asking my mother why people didn't believe that well, but then we called African Americans um, or something worse um, that, that they they had so much difficulty in their communities and were often mistreated taken advantage of um, and worse and she said Candace, because if it doesn't happen to them or to someone they know it's like I, I don't believe that's happening um, and yet if you look at the data for Caddo Parish for the 50s and 60s, um, it it was uh, was very bad. It was after, I don't know if you want this, but you can cut it out if you don't. (laughs) After the uh, incident at Little Union Baptist Church, I remember coming I was home from school and mother came home from work she was working for the Catapultor Safety Council uh, in the Medical Arts Building and she came home crying and upset because she, she had seen horsemen hurting children walking from, from BTW and knew about um, riding horses in the church It really really shook me that day Um, but it also opened my eyes to to see what I might not have noticed Um, I was still pretty naive Um, but nevertheless the folks that in that community um, the North Louisiana Civil Rights Coalition has been collecting oral histories from these folks who were Involved in the civil rights struggle and a lot of what happened in Shreveport really did influence nationally. Uh, I mean Dr. King taught about, came and taught a thing about nonviolence and how important it was in making change, nonviolent techniques for children who were going to be integrating Caterpillar schools uh, to avoid uh, conflict at, at all possible They've collected all these oral histories and there are uh, there are two sisters on the board of the Civil Rights Coalition um, that were the children of the custodian who lived in the house next door or um, I think in churches we call them the sexton or a lot of churches too and they remember after that incident their father telling him to come help him clean up the church because, of course, it was, you know, the indoors with horses inside and everything you can imagine. Um, so they were there helping him, and over the course of several days, um, a Shreveport police officer would come and stand in the back and watch him with his arms folded and his gun on his hip, which was pretty uh, telling to those two two children, you can, two little girls, you can imagine, and terrifying after because they they were there when it happened so uh, anyway uh, all that's really important and and one of the things that the choice grant is doing in collaboration with some local foundations uh, uh, and other funding um, along with the choice funding is saving old Galilee Restoring it to its footprint, we can't restore it to. It's it's on the national register as an architectural element to the historic district, but it it is has been commented by both federal and state historic preservation folks that, that it, it's earned one by on its own because of the social history there. Um, the um, it's being restored to its historic footprint, which means. And if we'd waited much longer, it would have been too late. Structurally, cosmetically, it will look the same. But obviously, you can't to do do a restoration. You have to use the same materials that were used to build it. You know, that that church was built by pretty much by parishioners in the twenties, early twenties. Um, it was founded by freed black slaves um, who built the first um, structure there. Um, and just has tons of history there were lots of meetings there for educational efforts and of course also at Little Union um, and several other churches in that neighborhood churches were the foundation of black neighborhoods um, because there wasn't much other support available um, in a community and Ideally, neighborhoods, people get to know, know each other and take care of each other, but there's less of that now than there was. And a lot of that, is, there's lots of reasons for it, not to mention the internet and um, just the fact that everybody's working. <laughs> or most everybody, anyway. So there's not the time, or there aren't moms at home co parenting kids, and, you know, that sort of thing, although there's still people who help each other in neighborhoods and it's um, it is a sign of a healthy community when you can have that. If you don't, um, then everybody's got their own perspective and blaming somebody else for what things why things are the way they are. When I mentioned the statement about I'm from the government and I'm here to help you, the perspective that um, programs took, HUD programs at least, and others as well, um, was looking at the community as a whole, not just one piece that you're gonna fix. And what are the other resources in the community, both private and public and nonprofit, what's missing? Getting people together to talk about what they see as the biggest needs and problems in their in their community. We have, um, we have neighborhood associations but, and I once, when I was with the city with community development um, as an employee, I, of course I, I talked a lot with Matt McCarter, who was who's another local hero who uh, was developing his remarkable uh, model, and I asked him if he'd talked to any neighborhood organizations, and he said, yes, but you know, I, I have found that in some of, for some of them, they are more interested in keeping people out than letting people in. <laughs> and he said it, and it, in some cases it's, it's kind of like, um, oh heck, the, the science fiction novel, um, of the farmyard, um, Animal Farm? Yeah. If you're not careful, the pigs take over, <laughs> which was pretty, pretty insightful. I think he realized in his ministry. He said he felt like from the pulpit he was throwing droplets of water, and people were catching them in cup bottles. You know, uh, rather than being in and among and listening to minister to people and. We think we know what people's problems are, but if we don't talk to them, we don't know, you know. So rather than the government coming and telling you what they can do for you, it's do the due diligence, the research, and the community engagement, and you tell us what you need. And we'll see if it's something that is possible for government to be, you know. If it's something that's obviously handled by the private sector, you don't want to do that because there's resources to do that already. But you know, in many cases, there are not. And I've uh, I've met some remarkable people in public service. We always think of politicians and uh, you know folks who are looking for attention to get reelected and all of that. But there are auditors and finance people and um, nonprofit executive directors and uh, program managers who work extremely hard and don't get paid a lot. Uh, Peggy Shimwell is one of the heroes that I can name who's sadly now not with us but uh, she was a psychologist who saw the growing homelessness in the community and was engaged with those other ladies to develop a response to try to deal with it, and decided not to practice anymore, and founded a nonprofit community support programs to work with the mentally ill, homeless, and the dually diagnosed. Because frequently, people who are mentally ill or may have substance abuse problems, there's no shelter that's gonna was going to let them in. Uh, and if it, you know, if there's going to be any difficulty. Um, they get kicked out um, so there it is, there was a need for people who had master's level social worker um, certifications and some psychiatric social workers to work with people in many cases you're talking about it might be a veteran who is off his medication and the family has written off or in some cases they see him once a month when he gets this disability check and he has a really nice time and they drop him back out to the street again uh, there's that that happens too but to work with folks get them assessed stable on their medications and in the meantime keep them in transitional housing where they can be have a case manager um, and Then help them get into an apartment, a job, and they've had remarkable success. Um, Virginia Sheehy, there's an assisted living, uh, supportive housing, which is one of the HUD programs that was developed for people with disabilities or for senior citizens to, to live independently rather than having to go into nursing homes, which they, you know, at that point they don't need. You know, they're physically okay, they just can't live alone because of their age or because of uh, mental illness. And so they developed um, what was named Virginia Place because Virginia she gave them the land. Uh, And it's apartments for people with mental illness who are able to be stable and with, you know, minimal support, case management support getting them to doctor's appointments, uh, helping them deal with um, insurance or uh, Medicare or Medicaid issues. Uh, people can live in the community instead of being homeless and can be stable, some work. Um, when they opened Virginia Place, you know, there was, a, of course, a little reception there and. I was, I was working for HUD at the time so I was there for that reason and um, one of the folks and I don't know who they were I wouldn't say their name if I did but uh, came up to Virginia and said well how do you feel about having this across the street and Virginia she said well I'm hopeful that it will be encouraging to other property owners to improve their property too <laughs> she was just wonderful she really was um, she and my mother were friends and contemporaries in working in the community and um, the opportunities that I had to be exposed to her are, are so valuable. Um, you look at the beards uh, and, and what they were able to accomplish and the foundation they achieved. Um, the Selberers. there were folks in, in this community, both Democrat and Republican, who came together regularly to work on civic issues and try to find solutions uh, and we still had you know we still had lots of problems depending on you know the economy, uh, race relations, and um, school issues. People were making a difference and making progress that's still happening it's just not as visible as it was. Now you know they took some criticism for it but you know they were maybe they were naive they didn't realize how vulnerable they they could be and certainly in today's environment Um, and it doesn't have to be that way it's well for example mothers work with a PTA. Um, the school board asked the Cattle Parish PTA, this co- committee, I forget the name of it, but it dealt with quality in schools, to go visit all the black schools and file a report on it. You know, and these women who were, you know, very interested in educational opportunities for children said sure we will and when they did now this was in the 50s this was in the late 50s they were horrified at what they found there were kids on dirt floors in old tumble down churches with torn up school books people say oh that's not true it's not true it was true and they raised holy hell with school board about it and that's when they began building new black schools. Now, again, it was still segregation, you know. Um, Dr. Mildred Scott, for example, who graduated from Central Colored High School at 15 and got on a bus to the University of Maryland where she ended up with a PhD in biomedical research and eventually came back and chaired that department. Um, her mother still lived on Metal Street and was elderly and, and Mildred came home to take care of her mother and um, I think had retired from the uh, university and started a nonprofit called SIA. Now this was like in the 89, 90 something like that, Science Engineering and Health Careers program. Sound kind of like STEM, huh? Except it was a decade sooner. <laughs> Um, and she worked with kids after school in helping prep them for medical, engineering, technology, science-related careers. She produced doctors and nurses. Um, below the radar, didn't do the big you know, meetings in front of the T V cameras on all the wonderful things they've done. And that's necessary for big nonprofits to do, I understand. But um but without making all that noise, um, and I, I can't help but thinking about that little fifteen year old girl on a bus to North Carolina. gotten way off topic. No that's great well I'm going
0: to move you I'm going to move you to um, what's our final question that was great I mean there are a lot of people you talked about that I've never heard of and that we probably need to know more about. Yeah
1: well there are a lot more that I don't I don't know about, it about either but um, you have to simply be active in community efforts to bump into them, and it, I'll tell you what, it really makes a difference in your view of the community, because when I was at high school, we called it shreveport it was If it was from Shreveport, it couldn't be any good, and if somebody was from out of Shreveport, what could they know?
0: Well, I'm going to move you into the okay. final question. My final question for you is, as you look around our community now, what makes you optimistic about its future?
1: There are people who see the possibilities for beyond what we have done in the past, um, you know, and that's the young men, and I say young, of course, it's my age. They're young, uh, who have come back and uh, and I, I don't re- I don't remember all their names, so I'm not going to mention any, but have taken the Sears building and done. The redevelopment of that of uh, a coffee shop and commercial on the ground floor and residential above, and there's three or four other buildings. Uh, what people were able to see in the value of an arts district, and as hard as it was uh, to get to the point where they finally did open the pavilion, have the pavilion open, uh, Shreveport Common, and there's always folks in Shreveport that say oh it's not going to be any good unless the private sector does it. The private nonprofit sector is very important and as I learned and I heard first from my mother it's not just income it's the quality of life that makes Communities and cities, places where people want to be and gather and interact, and when we talk to each other, when we have places that we can go and see each other, instead of being exposed only to our limited little circle of friends and our our block, our uh, our church, our you know um, our own. Clubs that don't let everybody in. Uh, We see a much bigger picture just like travel is educational. We see there are lots of ways to deal with certain elements of a city or there are different creative ways uh, that people help each other. Um, There are places you know where both the private and nonprofit sector have collaborated to do some things that couldn't have been done by either on their own, you know. And that creates economic opportunity in and of itself. Anything that draws people creates economic opportunity. At Shreveport Common, you're making economic opportunity for artists, um, and you know some of the projects in Shreveport Common have been held by choice. The efforts to uh, save and redevelop uh, those two iconic old houses on Austin Place, Uh, the um, oh heck, what's the name of it? The was it three-story building that was the center of Black cultural life um, in the twenties that. I wish my, I've never been great at names and and it is getting worse the older I get. Um, It's all right. The ballroom uh, and the remarkable things that 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 woman did. I mean, it basically was a group of women. You had a thriving community in Ledbetter and Allendale that was integrated. There were both black and white people living there. Um, That there were black businesses but they didn't have the type of clubs, businessmen's clubs, that um, uh, that you know white families did. But Cora Allen built that, conceived that, and built it. Brought in some of the best entertainers in the state and around to a rooftop garden. The, and it was a it was a community of black women, many of whom were business people. And they created office space for their husbands, entertainment for their families, and I mean, it was really extraordinary. Um, It's one of the reasons Peggy Shinwell named that development—you know—of townhomes. Um, It's behind what is now the, um, um, oh heck, the Dollar Store. Which, when that was done, Liz Wayne said it was the first new development in Leadbetter in 30 years. Uh, but it was a store for people to buy things that so they didn't have to take a bus to to Kings Highway or North Market, you know, as well. And they carried some food items. But at any rate, um, the little two rows of two-story townhouses, um, Peggy named the Cora Allen development after her because of the amazing things that she did and how little she's known. Um, um, I love Cheryl White and the tours that she does in um, the historic cemetery of yellow fever victims and what people have come together and done there to build a monument there that acknowledges... I mean we lost what was it 24 percent of our population uh, we weren't even really a city then but nevertheless it, it, I mean not really but for the most part um, people like Gary Joyner you know he's continuing to do significant like for example they found the gra- another graveyard there um, that they think is where um, the Shreveport father is buried um, because, uh, and that was a couple that came from New Hampshire. I didn't even realize that till I, I finally was able to take her a tour not a few not too long ago, and there were like seventy people, you know, wow. in twilight in the cemetery. It was terrific, in Oakland cemetery, you know. Uh, anyway, um, that keep digging in the dirt of community life and finding jewels, and and many of them are people. I I just wish we had more respect for each other. Social media has made it possible to insult people and not be accountable. And it's a, you know, it's a wonderful mechanism for keeping up with family members and friends, but it has become um, weaponized. And, and, you know, our enemies have used it against us. China and Russia are doing everything they can to split us apart, you know, and, and by feeding into all of our worst um, characteristics to try to divide us. But um, the kids are smarter than we are; they always are.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate you being here, sharing your story today, and um, you have such a. Unique and important perspective, so I appreciate you making the time. No, I'm not time.
1: sure I gave you what you wanted, or what you were looking for. You were great. Okay. But thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for the people that you are profiling, because it's really important. We need we need to recognize those people, and they're, they're you know, I, I am very well aware of some of them. They are reasons to be proud in this community. And we must remember the games that have been made. Um, we're not really very good at at remembering the past. Um, it's, um, I, mean, I don't even know how much history we teach anymore in public schools, but um, for some reason we'd love to complain. It's just human nature and Bad news gets more visibility and people are more likely to click on it than good news. And the people doing all this good work, they're not jumping up and down saying, hey, look at me. You have to want to find them. And it's not hard. It is not hard.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely.